We're coming to a part in Luke this morning that uh, some people have called the Sermon on the Plain. And um, it is uh, analogous to Matthew's um, version of much similar content, which is called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, We'll get to how they ended up with those names and the difference in just a moment. But uh, the thing that I want to say at the outset is this is the kind of the first uh, consolidated moment that Jesus has with the newly identified 12 disciples and their larger group. And he is uh, beginning now in in earnest, if you please, to teach them the viewpoint or the understanding of, of kingdom life. You recall that we had said last week that this is approximately the middle of his ministry. And up until this point, the disciples, um, much more than 12 of them, have been following him. They've seen his miracles. They've heard teaching Uh, They've observed uh, his ministry and care of the sick and uh, those who are demonized, and uh, he's uh, done those kinds of things. They have become convinced that he is special, that he is a teacher sent from God. John identified him as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. All of these things uh, have kind of uh, lodged in their minds. But now Jesus, uh, having gained their confidence in a sense, and identifying the twelve that will comprise his inner circle, uh, begins at this point to really drill down and pour into their lives over the next year and a half the essence of kingdom values and kingdom teaching. And so this is a very, very decisive moment that uh, we come to. Now, Um, When you read Luke, and let's do that for a moment, verse 17 of chapter 6, Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place. And there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of his diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured And all of the people were trying to touch him, for power was coming from him and healing them all. Well, it's interesting that um, Luke says that he came down and came to a level place. And Matthew says that he went up onto a mountain. And he taught the crowds, the disciples, the crowds and multitudes, saying... And when you compare Luke chapter 6 with Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, you realize that the content is very, very similar. And then when you compare it with the events preceding this message and the events following this message, um, you also get the impression that these were probably given at the same time. And so um, when you start reading the various commentators on, uh, you know, is this the same sermon or a different sermon? Why does Luke say he came down? Matthew says he went up. What's going on here? 
Uh, well, the um, various commentators are just all over the place. Um, and you can almost tell uh, what kind of view of Scripture they have by just reading a page or two uh, before you see where they're going with their discussion. Now, whenever I uh, bring something like uh, this out on a Sunday morning, um, I'm reminded of advice that uh, one of my professors gave who said that when a chef prepares a fine meal, he does not bring to the table all of the utensils and mixing bowls and uh, whisks and cutting boards and all of those kinds of things. He just uh, serves the dinner on a lovely appointed plate and brings that to the guest. And so he said, when you prepare for a message and you deliver the sermon, bring the dinner plate out uh, and don't bring out all the utensils. In other words, you don't have to bore people with all of the background. Well, that, that's kind of always in my mind, and I'm never quite sure, okay, how deeply do we go into some of these uh, nitpicky things or how, uh, you know, how much do we talk about on a Sunday morning when the point is application? Uh, what are you going to take to work with you tomorrow? It's probably, pardon? Okay, yeah, it's, it's, we're probably not going to take, um, you know, the, uh, the textual criticism to work with you. But there is a point here that we'll get to. And yes, I'm going to bring the utensils out this morning. Because I know that some of you are very careful readers of Scripture. And, uh, you know, you've read Matthew. And you're reading Luke, and you've looked at these two things, and you say, okay, what gives here? And if you have a high view of Scripture, as I do, and you hold to the inerrancy of Scripture and to what we call verbal plenary inspiration, that does not mean dictation, but it means that every word and all of the words have importance and significance by divine inspiration, uh, when you come to something like this, where uh, there's two different angles coming together, and Luke is very abbreviated. I mean, Matthew takes three chapters to report this sermon. Luke takes only this chapter, and we're already into the middle of it. So he has a greatly abbreviated version. And you say, okay, how does this fit? And one of the things that you have to, to consider is, do either of the gospel writers say anything that is a direct contradiction of the other one? Do either of them say something that is opposite or cannot be true if A is true, B cannot be true? That kind of a thing. And when you examine these two um, passages, you find that there are no such opposing viewpoints. Um, Matthew, in fact, part of the science of understanding eyewitness testimony is that everyone sees things a little differently. It doesn't mean they see different things. It means they see things a little differently. And uh, we were discussing this at the dinner table last night, and it was suggested that I do a, uh, an exercise with the first hour 
which I didn't do, by the way, because it would have been extra work for them and you would have gotten off scot-free. But uh, the suggestion was, you know, have uh, several people uh, take notes on my message, on my sermon, and then come to this hour and do the comparison between what everyone heard from the same sermon. And the point of that is, is that depending on uh, how God is speaking to you, depending on what's going on in your life, depending on your perspective, um, different people would have really focused on different things. But everyone would have heard the same message, and probably by putting it together, we would begin to, to flesh out the whole thing and begin to see that. Um, Matthew is writing as a Jew to a Jewish audience, proving that Jesus is Messiah. That's his point. And one of the things he's uh, interested in is how Jesus treats the law. And so in Matthew's recording of this sermon, he goes into the great detail about the law. And he talks about that. And you know how Jesus reiterates those uh, basic commandments to, of treating one another. And so Matthew goes into some detail with that. Luke tells us that he's writing a treatise that is a summary overview of everything that Jesus began to do and to teach from the time uh, of his birth, in essence, all the way through the book of Acts, which is volume two of Luke's writing, all the way through the book of Acts, 50 years of church history, uh, 25 with Jesus, and uh, or 30 with Jesus, and 25 or so with the church. And so Luke's point of view is, I want you to get the heart and soul of the message. Matthew says, if you're a Jew, I want you to get the details. I want you to understand this and how Jesus relates, uh, in, in particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, to the law. So it seems reasonable that they would be focusing on different things from the same message. The other thing we take into account is that Matthew was an eyewitness. He was there. He was one of the twelve. He was listening to the sermon. Luke who was a later convert, tells us that he investigated these things to give us a historical record, that he interviewed the disciples, he interviewed perhaps Mary, he interviewed others that gave him insight and information. And then you remember what Jesus said uh, in John chapter 14 as he begins to talk to his disciples about his departure and the coming of the Holy Spirit. He says, and he when he comes, he will bring to your remembrance all the things that I have said to you. And my conviction is that in all of the writing, the Holy Spirit is guiding and directing uh, the recollection and the memories and guiding these biblical writers to put down the things that Jesus has said. A third factor enters into all of this, and that is that Jesus most likely spoke and taught in Aramaic, which was the Jewish Hebrew language of the day. Um, that was the language that he probably spoke. There's been a lot of scholarly investigation into that, and some people argue for the Greek, but it's more likely that Jesus, in fact, used the Aramaic, which means that he would have preached this original sermon in Aramaic. And now it has to be translated into the common language of Greek because all of the gospel writers write their gospels in the trade language 
of Koine Greek, the common Greek of the day. And how do you do that? How do you make a translation? A translation uh, of necessity cannot be word for word. Um, it has to, uh, even though when you try to give it word for word, you have to change the word order. Um, we say uh, a big table, and if you happen to be uh, speaking Spanish, you say a table big. And uh, if we translated it literally, um, we'd have trouble in English. We have to flip the word order. We have to uh, adapt things to make sense in the syntax. Translation, even when it's a word-for-word -word translation, uh, requires an understanding of how to communicate in the two different languages. So I believe the Holy Spirit guided and guarded and directed that translation that was going on even with the biblical writers. So what we have here is we have probably the same sermon. I say probably. I'm not going to get dogmatic and go to the stake on that one. Uh, we have probably the same sermon. We have Matthew giving us much greater detail in the interest of connecting with a Jewish audience, and Luke giving us an overview of the very pithy kind of points that Jesus wants his disciples to understand, uh, writing to an audience perhaps a little later and probably more Gentile in nature that they might understand. And at this point, we're going to go out of the kitchen door and come to the table, and I'm going to leave the pots and pans back there. Uh, but I certainly invite you, if you have additional questions, to come and talk about them, because uh, the harmony of the Gospels, particularly the first three, are, are an area is an area that gives a lot of people some difficulty. And um, really, most of the time, it's a matter of sitting down and thinking through uh, what's going on and uh, trying to bring the two together. It says, in turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say to them, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Um, the first question that anyone asks of this sermon is, who is the audience? To whom was Jesus speaking? when he gave these words. You, you remember the occasion? Whether Matthew says he went up into the mountain, which he did, and Luke says he came down to a level place, which he did. Both of them say that there was a large number of disciples there, and there were huge crowds. The crowds were trying to touch Jesus, to, to be healed, to be delivered of demonic spirits. They were looking for some kind of help from him. And Jesus found a place, most likely on the side of the mountain, on the side of the hill, where he could kind of level out and get a perspective of the crowd and get his disciples around him. And the scriptures agree that he turned to his disciples to say these words, not to the crowds. He let the crowds listen in. But it was the disciples that he wanted to get this. And 
you and I can kind of make the analogy that he is speaking to us this morning. He wants us to get this. There is a viewpoint, a kingdom perspective that he wants us to have. And the first thing out of his mouth in both records, uh, Luke records only four of the blessings, and then he records four woes, which Matthew didn't happen to include in his sermon. But Luke gives us four blessings and four woes, but both of them begin by saying, Jesus opened his mouth and said, Blessed are the poor. Matthew helps us a little bit when he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And as Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his uh, extensive sermons on the Sermon on the Mount, understanding who the poor are is key to understanding this whole sermon. And we have to ask ourselves, he's speaking to his disciples Who are the poor? Many people read that and they want to think only in socioeconomic terms. They look at it and they say, well, if I were to say to you this morning, who are the poor? Not in the Bible, but in general. Who are the poor? Uh, Some of you would say, me. (laughs) And, And yet most of us would probably think about Uh, people who are struggling in the inner city ghettos, people that are, um, you know, uh, living in the in the under part of Chicago, uh, sleeping in the the tunnels and whatever. And we would think uh, these are the poor. They're people that lack what we consider to be the necessities of life. But if you look the world over, You have the poor in the inner cities and in the cities of our country. You have the poor in Africa. You have the poor in India. You have the poor uh, in Southeast Asia. All over the world, you have people who are living in poverty. Is Jesus saying that people who lack material goods are the ones that are going to inherit the kingdom. You don't have to think very long to realize that cannot be the case. What do we know the criteria is? You have to come to faith in Jesus Christ. You have to trust Him for the forgiveness of sin. You have to come to Him as your Savior. This does not apply to everyone on the planet that is economically deprived. And so it cannot be talking about the poor in purely economic terms. There has to be something else going on here. Now, the second thing that we look at is, we have already agreed, at least I hope you have, the text says it, that he was speaking to his disciples. And you ask yourself the question, who are his disciples? What are they like? Well, Peter and Andrew, James and John, were business owners. They had a fleet of fishing vessels. We know that Peter had a home. 
because he invited Jesus for dinner and his mother-in-law was sick and she had to be healed. And so we know that these four fishermen had boats and houses and a fishing business. Even though Jesus had asked them to leave that, there has not been enough time, even if we think they did, there hasn't been enough time for them to have liquidated those assets. They still have them. Dad's running the business with the hired help. That's what the scripture says. And Matthew is wealthy. Zacchaeus was admittedly a thief by his own admission, and, and he gave back a lot of the money, but Matthew doesn't say that he uh, wanted to give back those he had cheated. He, he threw a big banquet, invited Jesus to the banquet, and had all of his friends come in his home. So if you look at the disciples, they don't fit the description either. The Catholic uh, interpretation of this is, like Francis of Assisi, uh, people who leave everything behind, take a vow of poverty, they're the ones Jesus is talking about. But there's no indication that these disciples met that criteria. But in the Hebrew mind, the person who is poor is primarily a person who is in a place of great need particularly in relation to someone else, someone who has power over them, and they are relatively powerless or helpless in the circumstances. And if you understand this message to be a viewpoint of the new kingdom of God that Jesus is announcing, you recognize that what he is getting at here is those of you who sense your impoverishment of spirit are the ones who will inherit the kingdom. What does that look like? That looks like a person who comes to God and like Isaiah who has a vision of him in the holy place and instantly Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am undone. And I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. I'm in big trouble. I have seen the Holy One of Israel. And I am in trouble. I have nothing to offer. Jesus is telling us that the person who comes to God with that attitude is where the kingdom begins. Oh God! I have seen you, and I am empty, and I'm vile, and I'm needy, and I require your help. I'm in trouble. I don't have anything to offer. I have nothing to give. I need you. I am poor before your presence. As we go on and look at the comparison and contrast that Jesus gives in this passage. In fact, let's read it, uh, beginning in verse 20. Turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep, for you shall laugh. 
Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy. Behold, your reward is great in heaven. For this is how the fathers used to treat the prophets. But woe to you that are rich, for you already are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you that are well fed, because you will be hungry. Woe to you that laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Jesus draws these contrasts in these four beatitudes and these four woes. And he says, those of you who have this sense of impoverishment before a holy God, you are in a state of blessedness. Someone warned me, it was a former Catholic, uh, warned me in the first service, be careful about using blessed because it has certain connotations to people who were uh, raised in the Catholic Church. Well, I was raised in the Baptist Church. (laughs) It's just about as opposite from Catholic as you can get, by the way. And so uh, blessedness doesn't have any baggage associated with me. But whatever your background is, what Jesus is saying is, the people who meet this criteria are in a place of favor with God. They're in a place where He is near them. They're in a place where He will invest in their lives, where He will give them uh, the goodness of the kingdom. They're in a blessed condition. And the contrast is drawn between Those who sense their poverty, those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. They're desperate to to know God in all of His holiness. You remember what David said, like the deer pants for the water brook when heated in the chase? That's how my soul longs for you, God like the deer that is desperate for the water, running from an enemy. That's how hungry my soul is, how thirsty I am to know you. And and the Lord says, you will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all of your being. And Jesus is repeating this, this theme Those of you that are hungry for God, you will be satisfied. He will meet you. Those of you that mourn over your condition and the condition of the people around you, those of you that see clearly the the state of humanity and your own particular role in it, God will bring you laughter. And those of you that are despised. I mean, you've left everything to follow me and people are going to ridicule you and make fun of you and despise you. Your former status is going to be uh, ignored and, and people are going to treat you with abuse. 
rejoice. That's how they treated the prophets, the, the real prophets. Be glad. You're blessed when people treat you badly on account of me. But then he says, ah, those of you, and, and I can almost see him kind of looking at the crowd, <laughs> saying, among whom are the Pharisees and, and all of those others who love to be seen parading their spirituality around. He says the Pharisees love to pray on the street corners, big elaborate prayers that, you know, they just stand there so pious, speaking out loud and calling to God, and people say, wow, that's a really spiritual man. You know, and Jesus says, you who are rich, you think you've got it together. Uh, you who uh, are pretty satisfied with yourself, you that are laughing now because of your spiritual prowess, people that stop by and ooh and ah at how fantastic you are, he says, you're in trouble. Woe to you. There will come a day when you're mourning and weeping, and in another place he takes it a step further and says, gnashing your teeth, do you know what it means to grind and grit your teeth in pain? Because Jesus says there's going to be a judgment. And there's going to be people that show up at that judgment. Matthew chapter 25, if you care to look it up. Matthew chapter 25, there's going to be people who show up. And, and at that judgment, they're going to say, um, Lord, what about us? We preached in your name, we did all these wonderful things in your name, we gave alms in your name, we, we blessed everyone in your name. And Jesus is going to say, I'm sorry, I, I never knew you. I, I don't even recognize you. Depart from me, you who work iniquity. And he says, there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth as they go into outer darkness. The fact that you parade around in the name of Jesus does not mean you are part of his kingdom. When you have that genuine sense of humility and impoverishment of spirit and you're hungry for God, and you long to be satisfied by God, and you mourn over your condition, and you yearn for His presence, and people think you're just a little off, you're blessed. You're blessed. God favors you. Uh, that's a whole new way of thinking that He wants His disciples to understand. And then He moves on, and I don't know how much time we have to get into this, but we'll go for it. Um, notice in verse 31, he says, uh, or verse 27, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those that hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you, whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also, whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. 
you love those who love you, what credit is that? Even sinners love the ones that love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that? Even sinners do that. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Jesus is laying out an attitude of life that I want you to recognize is not possible without him. You can't do this. You can't do it. And his whole point in the Sermon on the Mount, as I pointed out to you, I think it was last week, when Jesus gets to the end of that sermon, this sermon and Matthew has recorded all the details, and Jesus summarizes it all. He says, if you want to keep the law, I can boil it down for you very simply. Be perfect as God is perfect. That's all you have to do. And if you've got half an ounce of sense, you listen to that statement and you say, I'm in trouble. I can't do that. I can't even come close to that. And that's precisely right. You cannot produce this kind of heart attitude apart from Jesus Christ. He is laying out for us a viewpoint, a perspective of kingdom life that only he can accomplish. Not you. And you need him to produce this. But he's not kidding. He's not talking out of his ear. He's not smoking something. Years ago, I would have said blow and smoke, but, you know, I think this is more apropos to our culture. You know, he's not smoking anything. He's, he's speaking truthfully. He says, I expect you to love those that hate you, to bless those that treat you badly. In fact, I expect you to think about how you'd like to be treated and go treat everybody like that. Love them the way you want to be loved, because your father loved you, and you're pretty ugly, and he loved you. And as Paul put it in Romans, even while we were sinners, God loved us and sent his son to die for us. That's tremendous giving, and he's giving to people that are ungrateful and unloving, and unlovable. We're just ugly apart from Jesus. It was pretty amazing. We all dress up and look good on Sunday, don't we? But oh, when the flesh is in control. I don't know about you, but I don't like me. If, when Jesus is not in control of my life, I can be one nasty dude. And so can you. I know that. Because I know me. And you're not any different. Apart from Jesus Christ. But with him. There's transformation. 
With him, there's beauty of character. With him, there's this loveliness. There's this capacity to absorb the hurt and the pain and the discredit and the abuse and to continue to give and to love. I don't have time to develop this, and I I don't even know if we took a month if I would have time to develop it in detail uh, or we'd never get through Luke. There are so many applications. Jesus is not particularly saying that you are to lay down and be a doormat to everybody that wants to jump on you. Listen carefully. Don't, don't take notes in your sermon. Sermon notes what I did not say. There was a time when Paul said to the Jews, remember book of Acts? Okay, guys, I've had enough. I appeal my case to Caesar. I'm a Roman citizen. You've abused me. You've stripped me of my rights. I appeal to Caesar. I'm going to Rome. That he exercised his rights under the law. And he was not wrong in doing that. You can can draw the line of moral righteousness and still love the one who is abusing the line without capitulating at that point. Jesus is not saying here you have to lay down and let everybody run over you no matter what they want to do. But he is saying the attitude of your heart has got to be one of love and forgiveness and compassion and understanding and you have to care for them and reach out to them and and if they want what you've got, give it to them. Because your Father in Heaven is the one who's taking care of you. He's the one who's looking out for you. And He will keep His eye upon you. That's one of your small group assignments this week, by the way, is go, go ferret this stuff out and, and uh, do some discussion and see what the applications are. And We're going to pick it up next week because I've run out of time. But Jesus, don't forget the main drift of the sermon. Jesus is presenting a way of life for kingdom citizens that can only be lived in the power of his spirit. It is not a way of life that you and I can try to follow and and succeed. We're going to fail. But when the Holy Spirit is in control, the transformation is pretty remarkable. Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom and insight this morning, that in the very practical day-to-day kinds of experiences, you would remind us of this sermon. Lord, I confess that I find more and more I just get irritated with things. I get irritated with people that seem obtuse and stubborn. Yet you're calling me to live a life of compassion and gentleness and spiritual awareness and and forgiveness and Lord I recognize that unless you do it I, I don't have it in me but you do and I ask you to live that way through me and through us 
as we endeavor to take you seriously. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.